You're listening to the City Lights Podcast. We are currently in a series called Covered in Dust, a journey through the book of Matthew, looking at the life, ministry, and relationship that Jesus had with his disciples that would later bring the kingdom of heaven through normal, everyday people. Thanks for joining us. Briefing of what that series means through January through June, we're, we're going through the book of Matthew. And we are looking at what it looks like to follow Jesus um, in everything. The the, the thing about um, our God, the thing about Jesus, you know, the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, the Father, is that Jesus is relational. And he didn't just um, send down a memo or a mission statement. He sent down his life. He, uh, for three years, walked around with his closest disciples, which... In the way that we would probably look at it from the outside in, if we didn't know the technical languages, just be friends. He made friends with these followers that followed him everywhere he went, and the way that he taught them and instruct them, and to use Sam's language, caused them to become spiritually awakened and alive was just relationship. And he broke bread with them, and he walked with them, and he encouraged them, and he cried with them, and he rejoiced with them. He attended weddings with them and all sorts of things that we would do on any other day. Um, And through that, somehow, these people that followed him were transformed from the inside out. And so there's lots of segments that we're going through to break things up to help our memory and to help us learn and grapple with bigger themes. The first segment was called Following Jesus from the Inside Out. And currently, we're about to conclude our second segment, which is called Following Jesus to Bring Outsiders In. This is the tagline that will just give us some footing as we jump into the actually final teaching or installment of this segment. Uh, And it says this, that Jesus' healings all the way, Matthew 8 through 10, after he gets done preaching the Sermon on the Mount, one of the most important teachings that he ever gave, he stops talking, he starts doing, and the things that he does, no one has ever seen before. He puts his hands on lepers, he puts his hand on blind people, on crippled people, he casts uh, storms into peace, he casts demons out of swine, he does all sorts of interesting things. Uh, but the, me- the meaning behind the miracle, the kind of message that he's trying to show both his disciples and people that are watching from the outside in, is he's demonstrating in people's bodies or in nature uh, what it is he's working on inside of them in their soul. And so uh, he, is, he is doing on the outside, really, then, what uh, in the unseen realm we can't see. He is trying to show us what he's doing on the inside by demonstrating it on the outside with metaphysical things. And so, for example, Matthew 8 through 10, just as a summary, as we jump into the last, again, teaching, this is really what we've looked at in the last three weeks, is that there's three different segments of healings. The first one is that Jesus is healing lepers, uh, someone with a fever, and a girl that's on her deathbed, healing uh, bodies to show that he can heal souls. So one of the things that Isaiah prophesied about Jesus in Old Testament reference, that Jesus is going to come, and here's how you know that Jesus is God. He is going to move towards sick people, and instead of sick people making unsick people sick, rather, this guy is going to be so authorized by God that when he puts his hand on sick people, his wellness is contagious, rather than sickness being contagious. Then he goes into a second segment, a series of three different miracles, where he calms a storm, uh, he casts demons out of these, um, this demoniac person that's on the other end of the shore, and he's showing really the world, and anybody they want to see, including ourselves, is that God has authority, Jesus is God, and he has authority over every anxiety and every affliction that we would ever suffer. And, and so uh, even, even the demons, even the waves, and even the problems of this earth knew when to bow the knee, Uh, when Jesus arrived. And lastly, Jesus restored bodies to show, as Timothy preached so well last week, that he is the only one that can forgive sin uh, from the inside out. 
And so this is actually the question, the, the kind of segment question that we're going to close up today. And I'm actually going to answer this question in three words at the very end of the sermon. So don't uh, fall asleep if you want to get credit on your homework today. Uh, but it's, the question, right, is how is Jesus sending me to outsiders uh, to offer Jesus healing from the outside in? How is Jesus sending me to, to go and interact with outsiders and run towards sickness and run towards brokenness and run towards affliction and torment and not be scared of it? How is he doing that? How is he provoking me to move out of my comfort zone into the outside margins of life? And how am I doing that in confidence? And, and what does that look like to help bring outsiders in? So that's the question. Um, Jesus, I thank you for the scripture this morning. I thank you that you are going to give us supernatural eyes to understand it. Um, and I thank you that you are going to apply it not just to our heart, but to our feet, that we might be doers of your word, not just hearers. In Jesus' name, amen. So this is a movie that um, you maybe like remembered seeing the commercial for, but I would guess that most of the people in this room right now have never seen this movie. And if you haven't gone to see the movie, don't see it because it's a complete waste of time. I think I've seen it on TBS one time, and I think the merit of it was maybe one day I'll use this as a sermon illustration because it's absolutely fantastic. So the, the frame that's above my head here is from a movie that came out in 2001 called Bubble Boy. Has anyone seen the movie Bubble Boy? Okay, so I, I'm speaking to a more warm crew here. Yeah, so Bubble Boy is actually a early, uncool, flex, like buff Jake Gyllenhaal. It's like nerdy version of Jake Gyllenhaal. And the whole premise of this movie, Bubble Boy, is this guy who I guess is, I don't know, he's probably 19 years old, has never like left the bubble, the plastic bubble that's around him because he doesn't have an immune system. Okay, so he lives in this house, excuse me, and he's allergic to grass, and he's allergic to diapers, and he's allergic to hugs, and he's allergic to candy, he's, he's allergic to anything and everything. It's actually a real, you know, pretty sad situation that, that actually people suffer from. Uh, but this is a movie that kind of makes light of that. The guy lives in the bubble, he's never allowed to get out of it, and he falls in love with the girl that's next door and basically tries to, like, protect her from marrying this guy that he's not, she's not supposed to marry. So that's the whole synopsis. You don't have to watch it. It's just that simple. It's a guy that's in a bubble. It literally is as simple as a boy that's in a bubble, hence the name Bubble Boy. And, um, and, and it's, it's, it's a bit of a commentary, right, on life uh, is, is that um, sometimes, like, uh, because of fear, because of stress, because of anxiety, um, we, can, we can choose, instead of being engaged and interacted with the outside world and move towards problems rather than away from them, um, we can end ourselves up in different kinds of bubbles as well. When you're a kid, it's awful, right? When you're a kid, you, you don't get a chance to like really make a bubble around yourself. You gotta sit in the stupid cheese bus with that kid who doesn't know what deodorant is yet, and he's just a punk, and he pushes you around, and you gotta sit next to whatever seating chart that the teacher puts you in, you gotta sit next to that girl. She's gonna be throwing pencils at you, and making fun of you, and stealing your tots, or whatever it is that kids do that's awful in middle school these days. You don't really have a lot of choice about the people that you engage or interact. But what happens is, as we get older, we have this authority, this ability to choose where we live. We get to choose uh, the jobs that we take or quit or, you know, move around in departments or whatever that, that may be. We get to choose, um, you know, our spouse, our relationships, our friendships. We get to kind of create where we're in and where we're out. We get this ability to kind of create this bubble around us. We have this ability to kind of keep insiders in, people that we like that are close to us, people that think like us, think people that work like us, close to us, and people that are not, the people that make us uncomfortable or cringe or feel awkward or hurt us, we have this ability to create boundaries 
uh, healthy boundaries. We create walls and we can create ways that even when we're talking to them, we're not really talking to them. Even when we're engaging with them, we're not really sharing life with them. We can create these bubbles around us, these circles of influence, so that we can keep the people that we want inside, inside, and keep the people that we want outside, outside. And, and there's, a, there's a prevailing kind of like argument and wisdom in our, in our mind is that we're thinking this is, this is probably what's best. Because, um, you know, the risk would be if I were to get out of my bubble, to get out of my comfort zone, I probably would risk rather than influencing the world, I might get influenced more than I'm influencing the world would be one reason why you might want to stay in a bubble is like, look, like I don't need those people kind of orbiting into my life and that influence into my life. And there's probably a reasonable reason for that to have a boundary and to have a fence. There's lots of reasons to have boundaries. Like there's ways and reasons that like I, I maybe wouldn't help the situation anyways. I'd probably hurt the situation more than I'd help the situation. So it's better to kind of put up a loving fence and stay within my boundaries and borders. But if we're not careful you know, in church, out of church, Christian, non-Christian, if we're not careful, we wake up one day as adults, not like kids, but as adults, and we look around, and everyone that's around us thinks and acts and walks and talks like us. I don't know if anybody would, would, would agree with me or, or uh, empathize with this feeling, but when you, when you look around your, uh, your circumference of your life, you know, the social connections in your life, when you look at your Instagram feeds of people you follow and don't follow, that choice to create boundaries, that choice to move away, that choice to move into you know, the suburbs or move into this other higher profession with the corner office can oftentimes insulate us from, from people that, that God potentially has put in our life on purpose. And so this is the passage today that we want to look at in Matthew 10. And it's, it's a really interesting passage because um, it, it's a page turner. Um, when Jesus kind of starts doing crazy stuff like walking on water and, and, and rebuking storms and doing some of the stuff that I was talking about earlier, there's a, there's a real um, easy posture to take as a disciple or as a person that's reading the, the, the scripture there of kind of spectator. This ability to look at, at Jesus and say, the point of this is for me to recognize how great you are. Right, like, like he's healing, he's changing this water, he's touching the water, and all of a sudden, a minute later, this water's turned into wine. And there's this, there's this ability for us to be passive, to be fans, to be spectators, and look at this. But if, if you look at Matthew chapter 10, verse 1, you realize that the, the purpose of the miracles and, and, and the point of all of the interactions that go on in Matthew 8 and 9 is actually not for spectating, uh, but for participation. Like, like, this is what it says. I'll read the first verse, and we'll jump in here. It says, Jesus called the twelve disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and heal every disease and sickness. So, so what he's saying here, and what, what the author is really demanding of anybody that would read this passage, is that, you know, there's a category of Jesus is God and we're not God, and there's certain things that Jesus has done and will do that we won't ever do. But there clearly also is, in verse 10, or 10 verse 1, this, this anointing, this authority, this ability that Jesus is able to impart with the people that are close to him to literally do the things that, that he used to do. And so he's, he's kind of saying in this verse, when you were watching me, you weren't in a movie theater, you were actually in a classroom. I'm not, um, I'm not putting my hands on this leper to uh, show you an exception to the rule. I'm showing you, uh, uh, I'm introducing a new norm for you. I'm not showing you something you can't do. I'm showing you something that you can do with me. You couldn't do it without me, but you can do it with me. 
is what we really looked at the whole series this, this entire uh, first six months of the year. And so he, he's saying this, this wasn't ever supposed to be a movie theater uh, for you to watch and be entertained and spectate. This is, uh, this is a classroom. I was showing you this so that you could do it, so you could follow me, not to be a fan, to be a follower of me. Okay, so then he, he starts listing off these names, and this is Matthew, by the way, obviously the, the Jewish writer here that's writing to the Jewish audience, and starts naming these people on purpose. And there's a point to all this. In the beginning of Matthew, in, in chapter 1, he lists off this entire genealogy, the entire first chapter. Uh, Matthew pays direct attention to names, and obviously he's a tax collector, so he's a numbers guy or a detail person, but the other side of it is there's a communication about not just the number of people on the list, but like the names of the people. He wants you to see, for example, in Matthew 1, that Rahab appears, the prostitute, and Ruth appears, and, and, and all these people that have uh, falters and failures and also successes. He wants to see in Matthew 1 the names of the people. Similarly, in Matthew 10, he wants you to see the people that are about to go do what Jesus is calling them to do. So these are the names. He says there's this guy named Simon who was called Peter. There's his brother Andrew. There's this guy named John, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John. So those are the brothers of Zebedee, if you guys know about them, kind of these angry, uh, cantankerous, uh, you know, real bulwarky kind of guys that just push their way through life. And so there's these guys. There's all these different personality profiles, right? Philip uh, and Bartholomew, who Bartholomew, if you guys remember, is the guy who says, like, whatever good came out of Nazareth, he completely doubted Jesus when he first interacted with him. You've got um, Thomas, who's doubting Thomas, the one who needed to put his hand in Jesus' uh, hands when Jesus was crucified and he returned and he wanted to have Jesus prove it to him. Matthew, the tax collector, and of course Matthew himself is of ill repute because tax collecting just meant that you were extorting your people for the sake of the government. You were just kind of like selling your people out to go get money uh, for the oppressive rule that was over you. James, son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus. Simon the Zealot, who is a political rabble-rouser. And then it even explicitly says Judas Iscariot, who betrayed Jesus. So he had a decision to include the anecdote there, the superlative, or, you know, to describe who this guy is. And he chooses to include, like, this is the dude that betrayed Jesus. Who's the, who are the people, who's the guy that Jesus just uh, put his Holy Spirit in to go and touch the unclean people to make them clean? Oh, yeah, the guy that betrayed Jesus, I want you to know, is the dude that was, that was not qualified. It wasn't the highly qualified people. It was the unqualified people. It's this long laundry list of unqualified, undisciplined, unreligious, irreligious, sacrilegious even, people. And it's hard for us to really grapple with, like, the, the kind of, like, um, insulting nature of the whole religious deal of what this is doing. Because, like, we have this thing of, like, the common man and this belief in, like, the little guy, like, rising to the top. Like, we value that. In that day and age, pretty much, like, if you were talking about religious purity and actually trying to bring good into the earth, like, step one was to go and find the people that were, that were consecrated, not common. Like the whole idea of like if you want more God or more kingdom or more whatever in the world that's better is like you don't take bad people to make the world better. You go take good people to make the world better. But Jesus and Matthew rather is being very, very clear. It's like it's the unqualified. It's the very um, unassumed and unassuming people uh, that Jesus is calling. And, and so there's a moral here, right? There's like a, there's a, a lesson to be learned. It's like he's he's he's. He's turning the page. He's activating his disciples, not just to be fans, but to be followers of him. And the people that he's choosing to be followers of him are just completely unqualified, disqualified people. 
And, and that's important because he's, he's trying to show, the, the writer is, I believe, and, and what Jesus is doing in his life, everyone that would be audience of this, like the thing that qualifies you isn't so much capability as it is availability. And that the posture that we're taking for seeing the kingdom come is less about kind of learned competencies and more about kind of poor in spirit, spiritual poverty. There's this thing that he's showing that the people are going to go and do these amazing things that no one would ever think, greater things than even you know, Jesus would do, he would say at the end of the book. But the, the vehicle to get there isn't learning more or doing better or practicing and getting better. It's like, it's sort of releasing more. It's this like trusting more thing. It's this like, I don't have what it takes, so I need more thing. And, and so he's not only showing like the vision and, and the mission, but he's showing the value. Like this is how we're going to do what we're going to do. So this is important. We'll hang on to that. Next, it says these 12 uh, Jesus sent out, and he says there's specific instructions. He says, don't go to the Gentiles uh, and, and enter any town of the Sumerians. Those would have been the, the, the outside outsiders. Just go to the, the fringe people of Israel. Israel being like um, the original, like Moses, you know, Abraham, like the original God's people that got the Ten Commandments and were following him. Like they were the ones who were expected that if they were going to get, you know, Jesus was going to come in and invite somebody to a party, they'd be on the top of the list. And that was accurate. That was the, the covenantal kind of expression here. Is he's going, I'm going to the Jews before the Gentiles. This is a major theme in the New Testament. If you were looked at, it's like you're going to get sent. You know, the, the, the church is established first in Jeru Jerusalem and then Judea and then the end of the earth. And he's like, I want you to go from the inside out. I want you to go and, and minister to my covenant family uh, because even though they have disregarded me, disrespected me, and left me and disowned me, I've not disowned them, and so I'm coming to them first. I know actually that, and this is mentioned many times in the Gospels, that the, the most amount of criticism, the most amount of persecution, and the most amount of dishonor is actually going to be from my hometown. And I'd have a lot more productivity and I'd have a little more advancement and fans and, and excitement and commotion around my ministry if I were to go out there to people that would receive me and like me. But I'm not going out there. I'm going in here first. And that's what I want you to do first. I want you to go to the people that are going to reject you before you go to the people that are going to accept you. And actually, I, if we could get the, that, that vision statement up from, from, from our church, like this is really the heart of the thing. It's like I, I think that in the transactional Kind of, kind of ministry church life, th there can be this draw to, to, to think of ministry um, uh, uh, almost in this like anonymous and public space first before it's family. And, and Jesus just never, he never uh, endeavored to do it that way. There's this thing that, that Jesus always, always worked to serve his family first. Later on in the, in the passage, it says, like, if people don't accept you, if they don't receive you, you're going to dust off your feet, uh, which, is, which is a bit of an uh, innuendo to the idea that, like, everyone knew that if you were on Gentile soil, you would dust off your feet because you don't want to carry the outsider's, you know, irreligious, sacrilegious soil inside of the house of God, so you would dust off your feet. And so he's literally saying, listen, my family is the people that follow me. My family is the people that do the will of God. And if you go and pronounce the kingdom of God and they reject you, then basically they've invited themselves outside of family. But that's not the point. The point is go and speak to family first. I remember when I was... Um, started doing ministry, and, and, and it was like one of these things that a guy shared with me that I kind of remembered and put away in my mind, but I never really understood until like kind of years later is like one of those things. But he's like, it's really important. Uh, he was talking about like 
going to you know, speak at other engagements and you know, going to preach at other things and doing camps and stuff like that. He's like, I want you to remember this. is like, as you go out, there's going to be a lot of really great ministry to be done in all of these public places, these places that you don't know people. And it's going to be really great because, and he kind of was being facetious, but it's actually kind of true. He's like, the people out there don't know you and don't know that you're a doofus. And so when you go out there, they're going to take you seriously and they're going to listen to you and that's going to feel really good. And he's like, and, you know, like, you're not going to know their business, and so you're going to preach to them, and they're not going to be accountable to any of it, and you're just going to talk to them, and you're going to encourage them, but that's going to be the end of, of, of the commitment. But he said, the, the people that you're going to really influence the most are actually not kind of the nations and the neighbors, but the people you'll actually influence the most is the families that you're with. Like, you're not going to remember the kid on the back row of the youth conference that you talked at, that you prepared, you know, some crazy sermon for. But you're going to remember, like, the intern and the, and, the, and the seventh grade kid that was next to you on the skiing trip. Like, this relational thing is where discipleship happens. And did you know this? This is a crazy statistic. So this is, this is actually a Barna-proven uh, statistic about ministry. And this is all under the realm of families before neighbors and neighbors before nations. But the statistic is that if I were to go ahead in this huge, like, pep rally for Jesus and we had an evangelistic effort and we all raised our hand to, to accept Jesus for the first time uh, in faith, um, trying to use some language that might that would be familiar with you if, if you're not, but, but the idea would be, like, start following Jesus, that if there's 100 people in the room um, and 100 people raise their hand to start following Jesus, that, that if those 100 people, right, listen, if those 100 people didn't have a family to belong to or have a group or a community to do life with, that after one year's time and 12 months, that only 20 of those people would still continue to follow Jesus. Out of 100 people, this is what the statistic is saying, that would decide to follow Jesus in a public environment where something clicked and the Holy Spirit was interacting with that person and the band was cranking, I'm connecting with the story, I'm connecting with the scripture, that would make a decision outside the context of family and relationship that 80 of those people would no longer be following Jesus as it wasn't for the sake of community. Community and family and, and, and doing life in discipleship is a huge deal. And so all that to be said, it's a kingdom principle, it's a real principle and something that needs to be paid attention to is that, is that anything that's prophesied needs to be pastored, and anything that we're doing in ministry should be done in relationship. And this is what Jesus is saying. I want you to go to my family. I know that they're rough on you. I know they're going to persecute you. I know they're going to revile you. I know they're going to reject you, and they'll reject us, right? You guys know at Thanksgiving that's a hard place to minister. You guys know that the in-laws is a tough place to pray for. You guys know that the people you work with are harder to minister to than the stranger that's at the street. But that's where Jesus calls us to the hard place of ministry, because that's where ministry is being advanced. All right, then it says this, As you go, proclaim the kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers. Those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received, freely you give. I love Jesus' clarity of mission. He's not being vague or convoluted about what he's asking them to do. He's not even talking about the why anymore. He's talking about the what. This is what you're going to do. You're going to go into the town, you're going to find all the sick people, and uh, those people are going to be the vehicles for the kingdom to come forward. You're going to find the outsiders. You're going to pray for them and heal through my authority their outside bodies. And in so doing, I'm showing you how this is going to happen. You're not going to, like, tweet about it. You're not going to, like, go and bark up and, and have a debate or a religious philosophical statement to be made. You are going to go down there. You're going to look them in the eye. You're going to put your hand on them. You are going to pray that for them, and in authority, they are going to be healed. This is what he's saying we're doing. 
And, and so critical, I think, so important as we think about this in our current context in 2019, because it kind of lends itself towards the end of the message that I talk about the answer, I think, of what this is saying. But it's like, it's saying, like, the, the mission is not to build buildings or to win arguments. The mission, the mission of the kingdom of heaven is always people, and it's very easy to get distracted from that. Because, because people are messy, relationships are difficult, they don't, they don't, they don't um, always work out the way that you hope. People have a thing called free will. People have a thing called offense. People have a thing called bitterness. People have a thing called spiritual oppression. And a lot of times, it's a lot easier to go in and preach at somebody and just leave rather than sowing in and investing in a community where disciples are raised up and, and, and can live. And, and, and so just a quick example, this, and you might have experienced this before or seen this, but like, I know this is my other youth pastor story. It's like, I would notice this would happen is you would have, you know, the youth group. And listen, this is the thing. And it's true of us as adults, right? This is the thing. Like, there's adults and kids, and they're sitting outside a church, and they've never been or they haven't been in a long time. And I literally heard a lady say this before at, at like, a, a, you know, at a big church where it's sometimes harder, harder to be known, where they're just sitting there in their car, and, and this is literally what she said she prayed every single Sunday. She prayed, I, I hope that somebody just says my name. This is literally what her prayer is. It's not, don't, I'm not, I don't cancer. I'm not kind of in debt. I need prayer and a miracle. It's like, I just want somebody to know me and I want somebody to ask me my name and I want somebody to know me. And this is what kids need. Kids, kids need, I think sermons are great, but they need connection. They need belonging. They need to know that they're part of something bigger than them and that, and that God loves them and that's shown through people loving them. And so what you want more than ever, if you ever become a youth pastor, you want, this is what you want. You want to go get four awesome Jesus, spirit-filled people that are in your ministry, because they're going to do most of the work, if you're ever going to be a youth pastor, and you want, this is what you want, you want them to be so nice to those kids. You want them to be so uh, loving, attentive, caring, hospitable. You want them to talk about their life, not to talk about, you know, their own life, but to talk about the kid's life. You want them to go to the football game. You want them to get in their life. You want them to get involved, Right? But the problem is a lot of times people, when they sign up for it, they're like, you know, they're, they're thinking about going on skiing trips or maybe meeting another volunteer that's cute or whatever. They're not thinking about the kids, right? They're in it for the wrong reason. And literally, this is what I see. Uh, this will happen. It's like the, you'll, you'll set the whole thing up and you'll get the popcorn out and all that stuff. And the kids come in and it, it's like we would coach through this. It wasn't like I would get frustrated. But, the, but the, the, the volunteers would just chill in the back of the room. Like, this is not, I'm not kidding you. Like, this is the thing that was like, it wasn't about the sermon or it wasn't about the music. It was like, how can I get the volunteers off the wall to go talk to the kids? Like, this is literally, we've gotten all the way here. We've got the budget and the plan and the games. And it's like the volunteers, they don't want to go. We, you know, we don't, I don't want to go to go and speak. But this is where the ministry is. And the thing about, like, leadership, you know, in those groups and things like that, it was like you, you'd want them, there's a tendency that we want to be in the sound booth right? Like there's a tendency in business that we don't want to really operate with the people on our floor and management. We want the corner office. We, we want to be out of all the chaos. And, and we hope that some way, somewhere, there's some leadership management thing that doesn't involve people. But the reality is there, there is none. They all involve people. They all involve problems, sicknesses, people that are confused, people that are hurt, that are passive aggressive, that are codependent. And so the thing is like, Jesus, like I want to I want to minister, but I don't want to do anything with people. I want to be in the corner, 
right? Like parents are like, I, I, I want to raise kids, but I just, I'd rather them just be on the iPad because all of that is just noise. I just don't want to get involved down there. And Jesus is saying, listen, the purpose of the kingdom of God is not buildings and it's not tweets and it's not brand recognition. It's not cool stuff. It's people. Like you will never get around the fact that the hardest thing is the right thing and it's loving people. It's stopping and talking and listening and putting your hand one at a time and praying for people because this is the only way that the kingdom of God is advancing. Amen? And so this is, this is what I see in this, is like this, this mission statement he's saying is like, you know, life goes on, time goes on, and, and there's this propensity as time goes on to create this bubble around us, to create this fence around us, and we're looking for purpose. Like nobody in this room says, I don't want to find, find purpose. Jesus comes and in, interrupts, and this is what I love about Jesus. He doesn't give a, a personality test, and he doesn't even check for availability. He's like... This is the assignment for everyone. There's no personality. There's no life circumstance. There's no financial circumstance. There's no political circumstance. There's no circumstance that diverts you from your mission. Your mission is people. So if it's Bartholomew or Thomas or me or Dimitric or Scott or Phil, it's like any of these people, it doesn't really matter what the, the personal profile is or the availability. The, the purpose is put your hand on somebody and pray for them. Go down and, and talk to somebody and minister to them and be involved with people. The tendency is that we want to pull away and create art that people could just like look at or appreciate or create a great spreadsheet or a plan that people can appreciate. And he's going, those are all great things, but here's what we've all realized. And those of you guys that have done work for long enough, and you know, we, which I know all of us have, is like the teacher that's the best teacher is not really seeing their lesson plan as the mission so much as the kid. The teacher that figures out, right, those teachers that, that you see, they win the teacher of the award, it's not because they have a great, there's actually five lesson plans you could do. The thing that makes the teacher great is they start thinking about the kid. The thing that makes the manager great is they start making their management about people. The mission's not the managing. The mission's the people. How can I get into the person's life? And the, person, the manager that becomes people-centered, actually, it's right, kingdom first. Right? Seek the kingdom first and all these other things come. The person, the manager that puts people first is actually becomes the best manager and the best friend. They become the best uh, steward of their environment because they put people first. The artists even, right? Artists that write music and, and create paintings and film and stuff. What they realize is that it's not just about me and my corner of expression, but it's the question of art. is like, how can I get my expression to connect with somebody, to help them tell their story better, to help them learn, you know? And so this is what Jesus is saying, both in kingdom principle, which can be experienced by anybody in and outside of church, but especially those that are in church. Your mission is not buildings. Your mission is people. Your mission is not rhetoric. Your mission is people. Your mission is not being cool or hip or winning people by that. No, there's no getting around the, the grueling, hard love, you know, labor of love, intensive, going with the kids on the mission trip and, and, and sweating it out with them. And when they're rude to you, forgiving them and putting your hand on them and praying for them again. There's no uh, bypassing or circumventing the kingdom of God mission, which is people, which is people, which is people. All right, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to hit this last point. And it, it's not completely singular in, in the original line that I'm talking about, but I think it's important, okay? So um, I want you to take a look at, um, uh, so it's in, it's in Matthew 9. We'll actually back up a little bit, but I think this really helps to tie things up. It says in verse 35, it talks about Jesus. And um, 
And it says he's going through these towns and villages and teaching in the synagogues. He's, he's, in other words, he's modeling what, what I'm talking about. Like he's, he's not in heaven waiting on people to get there. He, he, he's, he's left his home, right? He's gone across the street. And, and, and in a way, what he's showing us is, is that in terms of ministering to the Jews before the Gentiles, is like you can't cross the ocean before you cross the street, but you can't cross the street until you cross the aisle in the church, which that's a struggle for us as just American Christians. I mean, let's be honest. That's, that's difficult. Like, we think that we can go to the public space, and if I get to Africa, that's where the ministry starts. But he's going, no, like, you can't cross the ocean until you cross the street, and you can't cross the street until we can learn to daggum cross the pew, right? Like, we're going to have to do that first. And we can't cross the pew, you can't cross the living room, and we're at Olive Garden on our phone the whole time. Like, that's the thing is we think our purpose is in this dream where we're going to be a celebrity. That's not where the purpose is. The purpose is in the person next to you. That's where your purpose, your purpose is in the people that God has put you with. And until we learn to love family, we'll have no business loving neighbors. And until we love neighbors, we have no business loving uh, the, the neighborhood and the nation. And there's no business going overseas. Because ministry is always hard, right? It's always hard, and, it's, and it's, it's just hard work. It's not complicated. It's very difficult and painstaking sometimes and, and enduring. But he says um, he's going through the towns, and he's loving neighbors, and he's, he's got his hands on people. He's praying. He's not asking us to do anything he didn't do. He's a leader by, by, by um, uh, example. And when he saw the crowds, he has compassion on them. And that's, that's important. That's why I wanted to nail on that for a second. But he has compassion on them because they're harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. That's important imagery that I want to focus on in a minute. Verse 37, and when he said to the disciples, the harvest is plentiful and the workers are few. The harvest is plentiful and the workers are few. Like, like this, is, this is what I'm saying with this thing. It's like, we get this impression like the, the world is over church. Like they're, they're tired of church. Matter of fact, I would guess that if I had an anonymous survey and asked you, scale 110, how tired of, you are, of church are you? A lot of us would say we're tired of church. It's, it's the truth of the matter, is that, that we become tired of the programs and tired of, of kind of what can seem mundane and tired of kind of showing up and doing the same thing over and over again. But I'll tell you this, whether inside or outside church, people may be tired of church. People are not tired of Jesus. People are, I, I promise you that if, that if you could tell somebody at your gym or at your school, or at your work, hey, I want you to come to this place where you are going to be welcomed with open arms. You are going to be accepted right where you are. You are going to witness um, power and authority that comes from something that isn't just cultural and bubbly. And, 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 and the continual experience of your life, once you walk into the family of God, is going to be continued prayer, feasting, meals, hospitality, belonging, family, meaning, purpose. I promise you there's nobody that, that that's off, wants to mark themselves off of that list. This is the deal. This is what Jesus says. It's not that the harvest is not plentiful. It's not that the harvest is tired of Jesus. It's not that he's not ripened the age. It's not that people are post-Christian. It's not that people are sick of the gospel. It's not that people are sick of Jesus. No, people are sick and tired of religion and of church, but they're not sick of Jesus. And so he's saying the problem isn't the buildings and the problem isn't all that stuff. And those are all great ways that we can try and uh, uh, um, cooperate and, and mobilize a vision. But the, the centerpiece is always the same. It's never slick. It's always hard and always involves hard work. And the mission is people. And he's like, if you can find me 10, 12, 15, 120, however many people are gathered in this room, of people that have gotten out of their, their bubble to go reach people, I promise you, you'll have no problem seeing revival. 
you'll have no problem seeing the kingdom of God advance because the harvest is white. There's so many. Like, take your pick. We're sitting here waiting on, what, God, what are you asking me to do? Go outside. Wait till you find somebody that's sick, which there are a lot of them. Anybody here have anybody anxious in their life? You probably know because they bother the heck out of you. And you're like, God, where's my mission? It's like, he's right there. The nervous guy. That's you. That's, no, it's not the guitar hero. Like, it's not the crazy famous movie star. No, it's the guy in the cul-de-sac. That's what you're there for. It doesn't matter what, you, what job you have. You'll get promoted and then you know what you're going to find when you become a doctor? People. You know what? And they have schmock, you know, what's the, what, are you, what are you wearing the thing? The scrubs? They're going to have scrubs. You know what's underneath the scrubs? Craziness. Just crazy people. They're rich, but they're crazy. You don't get out of it. You don't get to graduate above the thing, right? You, you're put in the middle of people. And we're like, God, what's my purpose? He's like, it's people. It never wasn't people. And I've given you authority to get out of the bubble. And I want you to go and stop, you know, waiting on mission. Mission is waiting on you. And I want you to find people and touch them. You ready? This is the answer. You guys want to get an A on the test? This is real simple. Are you all ready? Let's put up the question. Drum roll. Okay. This is the thing in the segment, Matthew 8 through 10. This is my summary. I'm not a smart man, but this is what I got. How is Jesus sending me to outsiders to offer Jesus healing from the outside in? Ah, this is my thing. Okay. This is what I feel in Matthew 8, 8 through 10. Raise the sick, or raise the, raise the dead, heal the sick, cleanse lepers. I really think that Ultimately, what Jesus is saying is you don't need a Ph.D. You're a sheep. You're not a superhero. We look at Francis Chan and we're like, oh, he's amazing. He's not. He's, he's, a, he's a sheep. He's just like you and me. And if he preached to 100 people without you, 80% of them wouldn't even care because he needs us. He, you know what I'm saying? Like, like our story and our witness is the most important thing. And we want to crunch the math some other way to make it slicker, but it's not. It's one for one. That's how the thing works. And it's always worked that way. Put your hand on somebody. And it's the answer. Pray for people. I think that ultimately, if you were to read this chapter and sat down tonight and read it, read it all the way, 8 through 10, this is what Jesus is getting to. The best thing that you can do for somebody is get them in the presence of Jesus and pray for them. Your mission and purpose is not to go start a five, Fortune 500 company. It's just not. I don't have to know you to know that. I know the one that made us all. And he's saying, that's not your purpose. Your purpose is the kingdom of God. And this is what you're doing. This is, I want to make it so simple for you that it, you'd have to hire somebody smarter than me to complicate it. And it's to pray for people. He's saying, get on Instagram and don't complain about them. Pray for them. That's what he's saying. He's saying, take the in-law situation and pray for them. And, and, and we want some type of training, and we want to go to a, um, a conference to hear about some other more sophisticated way, but there isn't. He's just saying, pray for them. And if you're really bold, pray for an opportunity to pray with them one day. Wouldn't that be something simple but profound to make your whole life about? Who are you? What do you do? Why are you here? Why are you not dead? I'm here to pray for people. Isn't that stupid? Like, aren't you just like, shouldn't you know like something to say or preach or do? Or it's like, no, he says, don't plan what you're going to say. Just pray for them. And the God and the Father will tell you what to say. I'm not sending superheroes. I'm sending sons. I'm sending sheep. 
And the reason why I would put you into danger out of your bubble is not to prove that you're a better Christian or something else. No, because my children, I have compassion on my children. They're so lost. They're so hungry. They're so sick. Is there anybody that could boldly carry my authority and stop for a moment and put their hand on somebody and pray for them? The world is lost. The world is lonely. The world is not tired of Jesus. They're tired of church, but they're so longing for something that means something and somebody that actually loves them. And we're not exhausted of people like that. Take your pick of that. If you were looking for purpose, there's plenty of purpose. The world is ripe with purpose, is what he would say. This is our intentional prayer questions rather than intentional questions. We'll put them on the screen. Gather with somebody this week and make an effort to obey, to, to, to walk this out with somebody this week, your spouse. Is there anyone around me who talks so loud to control the situation I know that... Uh, they're not calm inside. I can feel their lack of calmness. And rather than being mad at them, have compassion on them and pray for them. If there's somebody that is, that is lackadaisical, lost in purpose, needing connection, needing encouragement, I promise you there's 25, you have way too many people to deal with than to find an answer to this question. Pray for the first one that comes to mind. And as the Lord reveals you something, then go do what he says to do. Send him a text message. Like their status. Whatever it may be. The simple, small things in life that, that really do allow the kingdom to come in these profound ways. Is there anyone around me that needs healing? The best thing that you could possibly do is not give people advice about their health. Just put your hand on them and pray for them. It's the best use of their time. It's the best use of your time. And, and he's the only one that has authority to do anything anyways. If there's one thing that I think that Jesus tells us to do in Matthew 8 through 10, it's to pray. It's to pray for people that one day we might pray with people. That would be an incredible mission statement to give our life towards. I'm going to invite you guys to stand as I close us um, in prayer today. We're actually going to close each segment that we go through the book of Matthew with a commissioning through communion. I'm going to have Timothy come to the front to lead us uh, through that time. But as he does that, if there's anyone here um, that this is maybe your first time here or the first time in a long time that you've been in church, I just want to communicate to you clearly and hopefully effectively that God made you and he knows right where you are right now. And the scriptures tell us that when he, when he was crucified, that's hopefully culturally I think we, we get that picture that he was killed, he was, he, was, he was murdered. That wasn't just a political act, that was a spiritual act. And, and what that means is that once that happened, that no matter what it is that we do or think or say or feel, that none of those things are more true than his truth, which is he, he has paid to divide the line of distance between man and God. And anyone in this room that would want to come towards God rather than away from him, to come home to purpose, to come home to family, to come home to meaning, in Jesus' blood, you can do that today through faith. That looks like prayer. I'm going to invite us to close um, our eyes. Timothy, again, is going to introduce communion in a moment. Just one more moment for this ministry time here. I thank you. You have, through your blood, through your stripes, healed us from the inside out, bodily and spiritually. For anyone in this room that has a faith to say, God, I want you, I need you, I don't have you, and I'm trusting Jesus as the name that helps me understand and get to God. If that's true of a person, I'm thankful for, don't even have to ask for, that you have just stepped into a new spiritual life, that you'll look back on this day and see it as a dividing timeline of your life. Where you experience peace and revelation and mercy and love and belonging for the first time in ways you've never understood up until this point.
So I thank you, Jesus, for the gospel. And I thank you concerning this sermon that you are moving people in mercy towards others, towards the simple acts of hard-fought, patient, diligent laying on of hands in prayer, praying for people that we might pray one day with people. In Jesus' name, amen. We at City Lights are so grateful to have worshiped with you today. We are a church that exists to be followers of Jesus who are devoted to building family, blessing neighborhoods, and bringing good news to the nations. For more information on our church, visit our website at www.citylights.cc and give us a follow on Instagram or Facebook. We hope you can join us again soon.